0: gentle singer of songs seems though the the artist in this case has a way with everyone primarily with children we'll emphasize that and yet with adults too I suppose the child and all of us and the yearning that all of us have how do you capture the uh, the story of this particular artist Danny Kay, who is so many things a mime a clown a clown in the noblest sense of the word a mime a dancer as you know, a singer of gentle ballads, a remarkable scat singer, an ambassador, a serious mm-hmm. actor too. Danny Kaye, if we may perhaps just begin. I know you're in town, you will be seen at Opera House from the 18th for six performances. We'll ask about that somewhere along the line of the conversation and the program that you have that takes everyone. The song you just sang, you the Balladier Inchworm, the song of Frank Lesser and the lyrics, this
1: this hits everybody, doesn't it?
0: What's the what's the attraction of children to this song?
1: I don't know, Studs. You know, there have been so many editorials, really, about children, about the relationship of children to children, of adults to children, of adults to adults, about children. It. Uh, I think in order to talk definitively about that, you know, we'd have to have considerably more time. I think basically all of us are children. I think the restrictions imposed upon us by society after we grow up tend to minimize the child in all of us. But psychologically, I think that all of us remain as a small child somewhere in our being. And I think that's what causes the the wonder never to cease you know about things happening in the world about people themselves and about the wonder of yourself being a child having to function as an adult it sometimes gets a little bit too much for people to bear and they uh, depart from the realistic world and sometimes people turn it into a great virtue and are able to balance their lives very well indeed by realizing that Part of them as child and part of them as adult.
0: Well, this is something apparently that you, Danny Kaye, have been able (coughs) to do. you are when I speak of you as a clown, I mean this, of course, in a very complimentary way, a clown in the true sense of the word. The clown is someone who's able to speak truths, other people can't speak.
1: Well, I will tell you a story, Stads. I don't think I've ever told this publicly, but it concerned my daughter She is now 16 and quite a young lady. When she was about five, uh, I think the essence of the story is that children speak the truth and then learn later on by demands from society and parents to behave well. And in a way it curtails their really uh, childish truth. I was sitting having breakfast with her one day at a resort in California and a man I knew came by and sat down, and he made a great fuss over But children have a remarkable way of spotting when something is really genuine or sincere, or whether somebody is merely making a fuss over them in order to either ingratiate themselves or to make some sort of relationship. And this man made quite a fuss over Dina and he was talking to her for quite a long while and seemed to be putting himself out much more than ordinarily would be demanded, you see. And at one point he stopped and he said, What's the matter, sweetheart? And she looked him dead in the eye and said, I don't like you. Now, I was both embarrassed and proud at the same time that... A child of that age would say exactly what she felt embarrassed by the fact that in a conventional society you know it's a reflection on the parent if the child says something that embarrasses them. But uh, now at 16 I don't think Dina would say that. But the
0: very fact that she said it then uh, you know the phrase you can't kid kids. Mm -hmm. There's a Danish writer who wrote a story called My Little Boy and it's almost a paraphrase of the story I just told of this little boy who was six People tried to ingratiate themselves and win his favor. But he just knew who was it and who wasn't.
1: I think it's even more evident when you deal with children who don't speak your language. The means of communication with children vary, of course, with people. But uh, a child who doesn't speak your language, who has to go by instinct and by emotion and by feeling, really know when somebody means uh, what they about them, or whether they're just pretending—they—they—they they, they somehow sense it.
0: Well, what's your secret? We may—I we, uh, know a great many people have seen your film, it was the UNICEF film, mm-hmm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. and your travels and seeing kids of various parts of the world, different cultures, different backgrounds. What is it in you, not probing a secret if we can, that makes you become the child or win this child as you do?
1: Studs, I suppose I could. Uh, make up a whole big psychological reason for this, I really don't know, honestly. I think that uh, one of the factors involved is my lack of inhibition about behavior with children. Uh, when when, When you deal with a child on his level, or at least try to make him deal on your level, there mustn't be quite the wide discrepancy between the adult and the child. You must somehow bring it uh, a little bit closer together. Now, um, there may be child psychologists who may disagree with me violently and I have no real basic experience in, in the treatment of children. I, I just speak from experience about having dealt with so many. Um, I'll tell you another story yeah. that will best illustrate this. I have a friend of mine, and uh, they had just had a little baby, and it was, oh, about nine months old. And this gentleman came to visit the baby, and he was a well-thought-of member of the community, and he was well-to-do and quite successful in his field, and there was an air of pomposity about him that, you know, denoted some (coughs) measure of success. And he went in to visit the child, and we were all in the other room. And the door was ajar a little bit, and I walked by, and I casually listened, and this gentleman, who had been so formal and so kind of, you know, very matter-of-fact, was leaning over the crib, doing... (laughs) Making a complete idiot of himself, all all kinds of sounds and noises and things, and the minute anybody walked in... He looked at this nine-month-old baby and said, and young man, as soon as you're able to, uh, we'll (laughs) deliver a bicycle to this house and you will have a present from your Uncle Robert, you know. (laughs) Now, I think the step that I made beyond that is I can behave with children on those levels, you know, from the time they're infants until they grow up, without having an embarrassment about being uninhibited. I think that's yeah. probably the answer. I don't know.
0: I think a perfect example, if we may demonstrate, is a perfect example. Well, this is a case of magic. Here is Danny Kay, the man, and obviously it's Danny Kay, the small boy. So if we can't perhaps, you know, sometimes <laughs> paraphrase. Well, no, Wordsworth, the child is father of the man. Here's a case of Danny Kay, the small boy. So I think in finding out about you yourself, there was a piece you wrote some time ago that reprinted. And, several magazines about the happiest man you knew,
1: your father. No. Yeah, I wrote that some time ago, but it's in the March issue of Reader's Digest. And it's incredible, Studs, how many people have remarked about it, the fact that uh, they were impressed by the article. Well, the article isn't really anything. I think probably what they mean is they were impressed by the man who had a, a really a remarkable influence on my life. As I state in the article, not because of success or accumulation of wealth, he had neither. But his attitude toward life, toward himself, and toward his friends was something that left a great mark on me. And I think, without realizing it, you know, uh, most of my life has been spent uh, practicing or unconsciously being aware of his philosophy.
0: In what way did he influence? this is difficult to answer specifically, but there were ways about the man. You make a comment here. Your father said, a <clears> man can't do everything in this world. He can do one job well. I'm not a good designer, he said, but
1: I am a good tailor. Well, yeah, he, he was a tailor, and he worked in, in New York in one of the 7th Avenue, you know, dress places. And he had, uh, he had desires, I suppose, to uplift himself, as most of us do. And he used to bring sketches home at night and make, Pads and things and little designs on pads. And um, he found that he wasn't terribly creative at that, and uh, he didn't beat himself to death about it. He found out that he was good at being a tailor, and he accepted that, and he never had a struggle with kind of frustrating ambitions and unrealizable uh, goals that he had set for himself. And I think therein lied the secret of the man, and that he was able to live with himself for what he was. And uh, I think, in a strange way, that made him, as i said in the yeah. article, the happiest man I've ever known.
0: Not like Willie Loman, in a way. This, this guy, your father, knew who he was. Mm-hmm. The skill, the element of skill, being good at what he was doing, the question of you and skill and discipline and craft.
1: I once met a, a young man who used to work outside of a building in New York who used to shine shoes. And he took an inordinate amount of pride in the fact that he could shine shoes better than anybody he ever knew. And to him, this was a remarkable achievement. Now, it seems very uh, you know, menial in many aspects to people who are captains of industry, I suppose. But within the confines of his own limitations, he was a happy fellow because he did his job well. I think that's, that's basically the truth about yeah. almost everybody.
0: Well, coming back to you, then, and your incredible array of talents doing the job well in so many ways, I know you're a baseball fan, <laughs> but you had a training ground. <laughs> I mean, th- mean we, we, we know that tremendous ball players are in the minor leagues and in the bushes, and there's a matter of discipline and craft, all this is part of your makeup. Aside from your fantastic native talent, beginnings. You worked just about everywhere in New York, the Bosch circuit, Mm -hmm. uh, clubs, everything. All this in one way or another, I suppose it was a honing, a sharpening, a refining, and discovery.
1: Well, I think to be successful in any profession, and every profession has a parallel. I don't think you can talk about show business and not draw parallels in medicine or law or engineering or whatever the profession might be. But anybody who achieves any real status or stature in his profession i think has had to work very hard at it now some people work more easily than others some people have to work considerably harder to get the same amount done and some people who may have a little bit more uh, instinctive or native talent you know can hone those edges a little bit sharper without quite the same amount of work however there is no possible way that anybody can achieve the pinnacle of success in their profession without having to work very, very hard at it. When I was 20, I was playing in a show in China, of all places. And because of the nature of the show and because of the variety of the show, we used to have to do very many things that we weren't really equipped for. But we got a basic understanding for it and we got a basic general education in our profession and then we later went on to specialize. The same parallel is drawn in medicine. Somebody goes to medical school if he has an instinctive talent for it or wants to be a doctor. Wanting to be something is very important as well. Uh, They will receive a general education in medicine and then pick a particular specialty that they think they can best express themselves in or function in. This is true of my profession.
0: Yes, but in your case, there's no one specialty. That's the point, that's what I'm trying to find out. The variety, whether it's the singer of ballads or the sketch singer, we'll come to that in a moment, or the mime, the dancer, and the serious actor too. Which was it in the beginning? What was it originally?
1: I I have no idea. I really don't. I've thought about it a lot of times studs, and find out what influenced me in which direction and who had something to do with what and uh, I find that you can analyze something to death you can analyze the spirit out of something because a great many of us don't know where our talents really come from oh they're given to us by some superior being I think but uh, we don't know how we go about developing it. You know, we work at it. But we don't know what leads us in what direction or what makes somebody run faster than somebody else. You know, we're we're both pretty much the same size or we both have the same physical equipment. One will run faster than another. Now, I don't know how you explain that. I think that
0: point you made is certainly a key one today. We find out more and more that a thing can be Mm overanalyzed. That intuitiveness is a factor here. We find this in new plays and everything. The matter of intuitiveness. Well, if we meet just an example. Um, New York, people knew of you for a long time, but it was Lady in the Dark. Mm -hmm. Was it not Lady in the Dark with your incredible way of singing? If we may just hear an example of this. This was was Tchaikovsky's, I remember. Mm -hmm. And a new way of handling polysyllables. How does this come? How did this come about, David? What this particular uh, this technique? This f- you said a moment ago, as you were listening to the very beginning of this. This is the beginning. The prologue was vague in your mind. Yeah. This is nineteen forties.
1: So yeah, I must shatter all your illusions. Go ahead. Um, when we opened in the show, and when I did Tchaikovsky, it used to be what is called in show business a showstopper. And people couldn't get over the fact that I sang 56 Russian composers' names in 36 seconds or whatever it is, and they thought it was something incredible. Well, really, it isn't. When you go back and listen to Gilbert and Sullivan, they've been doing this kind of thing for a a 100 years or more. And there were people in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas who were quite as deft with singing fast lyrics as I am or have been or many others like me. It isn't a, a, a special talent that only I have. There are many people who can sing fast lyrics.
0: What is this? Uh, the technique itself, though, is quite remarkable. And this was in, in uh, Lady in the Dark. You mentioned something about not remember. It's interesting, the very beginning, when we first heard the beginning of this. this yeah, I was.
1: Well, I was 23 years or 22 years ago. And it was kind of dim and hazy. I remember the scene and I can yeah. see it all very well. But, um, uh, what led up to Tchaikovsky was rather hazy in my mind. Strangely enough, I haven't listened to this in a very, very long time. Last Sunday, Ira Gershwin was telling me at a dinner, given to Irving Berlin by the Screen Producers Guild, uh, he was telling me the history of this thing. He had written this as a poem. And, uh, when I went into Lady in the Dark, they decided to set it to music and make a number of it. And, uh, There are many, many songs written. Oh, the list of critics written by Ira Gershwin are absolutely incredible.
0: See, it's a matter of, somehow, you find, aside from your highly talented wife, uh, Sylvia Fine, Mm in writing of lyrics, you and the association with lyricists, Frank Lesser, Ira Mm -hmm. Gershwin, Mm -hmm. and... uh, Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin, in this case, the music of Kurt Weill, Yeah. the the Jenny. This leads to, again, the matter of balladeering, uh, the, the matter of a ballad you went singing?
1: I'm not really a singer, Stan. Uh, oh, I sing songs, that's quite true, but I'm not a, singil- a singer in the popular sense of the word that I sing popular songs, I can. But uh, I don't know if I ever would have been successful had I tried to make my living by just singing. I certainly wouldn't have been successful if I had tried to earn a niche in the profession by just dancing. I don't know whether I would have made any impression on anybody if I just try to be in show business by uh, telling uh, funny stories. I think it's a combination and a conglomeration of abilities that kind of uh, are all thrown into one big stew and the broth that comes out is uh, Something else again. Well,
0: that brought You're not a conductor either. And yet, <laughs> uh, yet, and yet, here we yeah, come to, yeah, the, here we come to you and, 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 and uh, the matter of conducting. Now, this is incredible. I think it was a metropolis or someone spoke. Said it was incredible that you... There you were for the New York Philharmonic or the Berkshire Festival. There's a baton in your hand. Now, what happened here? Did you have musical training?
1: None.
0: Would you mind explaining the way... With all the humor and everything, else, you said you were wildly clownish and comic, and the audience was rolling in the house At the same time, the musicians were saying, this guy's a conductor. Now, explain that aspect of it, if you will.
1: Well, I've always been interested in music, good music. Uh, good music meaning, you know, classical music or semi-classical music, jazz, folk songs. I'm interested in anything musical. I don't like all of it, but I'm interested in all of it. Uh, I was playing in Philadelphia doing our concerts and Gene Ormandy and I who have been friends for a very long time uh, was doing a concert with the Philadelphia Orchestra and they had some uh, benefit performance or something, I don't know and he called and asked would I come and do something for this organization and I tried to patiently explain to Gene that You know, there are two phases of my life that I try to keep apart as much as I can. When I go about the country or the world doing public service work, I don't engage in any professional activity. However, when I engage in a professional activity, I like to do that and leave the public service work for another time. I think that when I try to combine both, I do myself and the organizations and uh, the. The, the professional aspect of it, an injustice, you see. And he understood that, and he said, well, fine, I understand it, Danny, except, you know, the fellows in the orchestra, you know, like you so much and all, you know, you've been visiting a lot that I'm sure they even can play if you wanted to conduct. And I said, you've got a deal. <laughs> Now, I think the yeah. greatest feeling of neurotic power <laughs> in the world is to stand up in front of 110 men and raise your arms and see 110 <laughs> instruments fall into position. You did well, this? Well, I, I learned two things um, from a record, and I conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, and it turned out to be kind of you know, amusing. Is that you're an excellent mimic, too? Is that it? Yeah, but I, I, again, I instinctively, I never studied conducting, you know, and outside of Gene uh, showing me the difference between, you know, four, four, and one, or in three, or whatever it is, I, ha- I had a feeling for it. Again, the matter of communication. See, now, when a, a gifted conductor stands in front of an orchestra, not only does he know the music and all its intent, but he also has a means of communication with the men who are playing it. Well, I don't have that kind of ability as far as the music or its intent is concerned, but I do have a means of communicating with the gentlemen in the orchestra. Now, uh, since then, and that was some, oh, seven or eight years ago, uh, my repertoire has grown considerably. And I now do a whole evening with symphony orchestras. And I do it for their pension fund, usually. And I tried to explain to the audience that people who have dedicated their lives and spent their emotions and energies trying to make music so that other people can enjoy themselves and have a good time and get some uh, interest in it. Uh, The reason I do this for the Musicians' Pension Fund is that when the time comes that they no longer can make music, they at least have some basic security upon which to spend the rest of their lives. So I go about doing that and having a wonderful time, and I've conducted a rather <laughs> imposing list of orchestras, I must say.
0: I think you've, you've bitten to the core of the apple here. Communication, I think it's ability, at a time when there's so little communication, hear so much of this, your ability to communicate, whether it's to a sophisticated uh, symphony audience, to the musicians or to the kids around the world, this particular quality. I, I gotta
1: tell you something interesting about that. You know, the first few orchestras I conducted, um, I, I had the feeling that the fellas were going to play and they thought I was just going to wave a stick, you see. I cannot read a note of music. So I couldn't say, uh, fellas, from um, uh, letter G, bar H, the, you know, the B-flat. I couldn't do that because I don't know you know, it looks like a bunch of fly specks to me. So I would have to sing to them the way I wanted them to play it. For instance, we do an overture called La Gazzaladra and there's one part where, uh, declared, I know every entrance of every woodwind, every brass, every, all the string sections, and I I can sing the whole thing from memory. So I would have to sing to them about, da-da-da-da-da-da-dee, dee da and there's a triplet there. Now, I can't explain that either, but I can sing it for them. And after we started, they soon realized that they were gonna play the way I wanted them to. You know, and uh, we had, oh, Now, there's always been an air of uh, mystery about symphony orchestras, like the same air of mystery about taking a prescription into a pharmacy. Now, it might just be aspirin or something, but there was always a kind of a... It it was always written so that you couldn't read it to begin with, and it was kind of a magic potion on the prescription blank, and you would take it in, the fellow would look at it, and he'd take bottles and put them together. You know, there's always this kind of black magic attitude about it and the same with symphony orchestras you know and uh, you had to be quiet and you had to listen and uh, it was a very serious thing and I think what I injected into this is the fact that people can have a a, a darn good time listening and also having fun you see I, I am highly irreverent about the uh, <coughs> symphony orchestras, and I think the musicians find that they have a good time and it's that a welcome relief and break yeah. from their everyday serious activity. This is
0: so funny, you're singing as you were conducting, this is, this is the technique of Toscanini and Bruno Walter too, it was, so there you were in the company. except the basic <laughs> difference was that they could
1: read music <laughs>
0: <laughs> If we could hear Danny, another <laughs> aspect of, uh, another facet of Danny Kay's art, the folk singer, we could skip, skip Jenny. The folk singer? Yeah, Molly Malone Oh! Well, I have Molly Malone. All right. I suppose the word here is delicacy. It's a delicate approach to this song. And, of course, we find this very beautiful listening to it, but you just said something, Danny Kaye, this moment. You said, this was done so long ago that were you doing it today, it would be wholly different.
1: No, I don't know whether it would be wholly different or not, but I think when we made this record, it was... Oh, must be 20 years ago, anyway. And in the ensuing 20 years, I think performers or people develop new attitudes toward themselves, or about themselves, or toward their profession. And although it was uh, uh, pleasant enough, I suppose, to listen to, if I were to re-record it today, I would probably do it quite differently. And I think that is the nature of things staying alive. Uh, Songs and things that I have done for many, many years always have an area of growth within itself so that it doesn't ever seem quite the same. But because my own attitude changes toward what I'm doing, it of necessity changes the thing that I am doing.
0: So now we come to, uh, I think, another key, the the artist himself, the growth of an artist and the element of spontaneity in your work, that it seems ever fresh, that you yourself then you feel are always changing one way or another. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, the six shows that I will do at the Civic Opera House, we should point this out. This is
0: March 18th to March 23rd. Yeah. Inclusive of the Civic Opera so House, yeah. you were saying about
1: these uh, shows. Uh, the six shows that I will be doing there. Oh, eight. How many? Days? Oh, eight shows. Eight now. shows. I am sure if you saw eight of them, although they would be woven in the same basic pattern, the thread running through it would differ, uh, considerably. I think if you saw uh, two evening shows and uh, a matinee it would depend on my mood of that particular evening it would depend on the mood of the audience it would depend on our means of communication and with some audiences it's a little bit uh, uh, better than others with some audiences there is a, a greater magnetism or electricity that goes on uh, your technical skill is something you depend on but uh, that has kind of been established. You've worked at that, you know, long enough now. You've learned how to uh, thread the sutures and uh, you know make the incision and all that. Uh, after you get inside and take a look at the problem that's to be operated on, you may have a different approach to it with each different case, and exactly the same principles hold true uh, with a, a show that you are doing. Each particular audience or. Uh, your particular mood colors, in many, many aspects, the total effect of the show.
0: Here's a case in a contrast to the film in which you've been, or to a TV program in which you've been. Perhaps we'll talk about that later, too. The, the aspect of a flesh-and-blood audience and you. The audience, then, the nature of the audience, can actually color your own performance. Oh, by you all know. means. By all means. So this, this uh, program you'll be doing, we call it a one-man show. You that, that isn't really. Global, that's it.
1: It isn't really, uh... We will have, uh, the Dunhills and, uh, the Marquis yeah, family, yeah, and then the, the chimpanzees, who are more human than most humans I know, and then Senor Winces, who is an enormous artist in his field. Now, the reason I have these people is because they're the very best in their particular field, and they bear repetition over and over again. And it's the kind of show that you can bring your family to, or your clergymen or your parents to, without ever running the risk of anybody being offended by anything that might not be in very good taste.
0: Wences himself, which we you pointed out
1: that uh, for those who, who he's an extraordinary Wences. artist, he really is. He used to be a bullfighter.
0: He was a bullfighter. Yeah. How do you how do you describe uh, what we call him, ventriloquist, or well, now there are many
1: ventriloquists. <laughs> And I don't think Wences would be offended by this. There are many ventriloquists who are probably more gifted technically than he is. You know, they could probably say more things without uh, noticing any movement of his lips at all. Uh, That isn't what makes Wences the great artist that he is. It's the concept, again, of his relationship to the people, yeah. I go and watch him night after night yeah. until little Johnny becomes a living, breathing yeah. human being. You yourself then are fascinated by him. You work with him many times. He's still and fascinated I watch you him, him night, after, night after night after, after. night, and yeah. I always find something yeah. new in it. Always, it's like listening to music. You know, people say. Victor borges is a good example. We talked about this in San Francisco some years ago. He was doing a show in San Francisco and, you know, there was some, uh, I think a review and said that Victor Borger was as gifted as ever and, uh, you know, he'd done some of the things that had been familiar, which was perfectly all right. And Victor said, now isn't that strange? People wouldn't dream of going to hear Beethoven or Bach and saying, uh, well, you know, it's fine, and but uh, it it has, you know, we, we heard it before. Because you always find something in it, you always find some new interpretation of it. And here is Victor, who has developed this uh, material and these uh, incredibly gifted things that he does to a very fine point. It has taken him years and years and years to discard and to... Uh, mold, and to polish, and to shine, and you don't haphazardly throw it away. And I think people who are really interested in an artist can see him over and over again, always finding some new facet of his work that would reinterest them. Well, this introduces a new point, Danny, this uh, view and barga certain
0: artists who are consummate in, in what they do. Timing. <laughs> this element of that can't be defined or analyzed either. Mm-hmm. Timing, sense mm-hmm. of timing. Did you feel, I suppose this question often comes up about today, young artists today, is it that we rush so much with the new mass media and...
1: Uh, well, to be, I'll tell you, yeah. you know, to be crude about it, yeah. there is no place for a young performer to be lousy anymore. There's no place for a young performer to practice. Today, a young performer has to be an instant success, you know, in order to amount to anything. Well. That's all very well and good, but years ago, as I explained to you earlier in the program, I had a basic training that went on for years and years. Now, if somebody has a talent and they are immediately catapulted to the top rung of the ladder, in the face of adversity, they have no, the next rung to step down to. They, you know, they either go down the whole ladder or they stay on top. And I have yet to find somebody who has been catapulted to the, top echelon of uh, my profession and remain there without any real background that element of training ground
0: sure another question I have to ask you specifically energy the matter of energy I mean the actual physical energy that's involved here is incredible do you train I mean is there Yves Montan trains like a boxer he told me way back some time ago he actually sleeps a great deal of the day and night. the matter of preserving his energy how was what's
1: your secret well I think I work a lot easier than that It comes easier to me. I I don't train in any sense. I live a fairly quiet life. And uh, uh, I take very good care of my health. And I think the the greatest requisite for good health is something that has been bandied about now for a long time. I am six feet tall, and I weigh 153 pounds. You keep in shape. Well, it isn't only a question of excuse me, of keeping in shape, it's a question of not carrying around any excess weight, which tires one more than almost anything else. Now, again, we may uh, get all kinds of uh, (laughs) notes about this from the medical profession, but I think the one thing they will all agree on is that when somebody is overweight, they would have a greater tendency toward ill health.
0: Minnie the Moocher obviously could not be sung. Let's do
1: Minnie the Mooch. No, 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 no. Uh, I'll tell you why. Why? Oh, you want to? Okay. I want to hear That is an audience participation Ah. song. And in the purely mechanical, uh, aspect of it, as you would hear on a record, it would lose a great deal of what people could sense when they're actually in a theatre. I did that on the first television show that I did. I did many. And it's been a standard you know, with me for many, many years. And although the people in the studio enjoyed it, I was quite unaware of what the reaction might be at home. I didn't know whether people were going to be singing at home or not because I had no control over my basic communication with them as I had with the people in the studio. So here's a case
0: then of your, uh, this involved the audience so much mm-hmm. that here's an obvious case of you being, your performance in being the choral master, mm-hmm. uh, being influenced by the very audience you're singing, so here on the record, it would uh, the, you mentioned TV, television, and of course that was a marvelous uh, program you did, what's it? Two, no two you did, no three? Three, three. In the, You've in in the last three years. Your approach to this medium, uh, ha- did this uh, you obviously were not thrown. You seemed very much at home with it. How did this, did this alter you? Do you feel this altered your... performances in any way, not having an audience?
1: Oh, I had audiences. You had an audience. Oh, you had oh, an audience yeah. there. Oh, yeah. we had audiences. It's, it's a different medium. It combines, you know, many of the features of the motion picture... and the live stage. But television in itself is a, a separate medium. I, th- I don't think yet television has found its own real means of expression yet, but it gets better every year. Uh, Newt Minow and I might have some quarrel about TV being a vast wasteland. Uh, I agree with him in the sense that when 20 hours of entertainment or news have to be provided in a 24-hour day period, I think the standards somewhat may be diminished. But by the same token, there are many things that television does that is far better than any other media of either communication or entertainment. A certain
0: intimate approach, you mm-hmm. might have. They wouldn't. But
1: we always hear the phrase, the great clown
0: loves to do Hamlet. You know, The great clown would love to be a serious actor. You know, we've seen you in a, a serial comic role, a very excellent movie, uh, adapted from the play, Jakubowski and the Colonel. The very beautiful performances. Jak- how do you feel about, uh, since you're obviously a, a very deft You can be an excellent serious actor, as you were in this instance. Has the thought occurred to you on occasion? uh,
1: Well, contrary to uh, the myth that exists about every every comedian wanting to be a serious actor, now talking from my own personal point of view, Mm -hmm. that has never occurred to me. I have never wanted to play Hamlet. Mm -hmm. I find it difficult enough to be humorous or to be funny because that in itself is a very, very difficult, uh, arm of the, the, the whole art form. Uh, I know I never did want to play Hamlet and I never did want to play a serious role. I was intrigued by the role of Yakubovsky because it was a, uh, semi-serious role. It was a humorous serious role. And I enjoy that picture as much as any I've ever made. I regret to say that it was a financial disaster. And I don't know what the reason for that might be. The, the obvious reason might be that people did not want to see me in that kind of role to begin with. And secondly, it might have been the choice of material at that given time that didn't seem to arouse the public's interest. Do you find this the case,
0: often the case, that people are sometimes fall into a certain Uh, that they would put a performer into a certain category and refuse to accept him in any other guise or dress.
1: Well, I think when people originally meet somebody, whether it's personally or whether it's in an entertainment medium, the basic first impression that is formed is very, very hard to kind of give up. Now, there may be many people who maintain the basic image that they have for others, and other facets develop about their character or their personality. But basically, I think when people see somebody for the first time, that is the lasting impression that one gets.
0: And that's why apparently you—this is one of your uh, strengths—that you're able to avoid being categorized because of your fantastic versatility. Dialects, for example, uh, probably you and Peter Houston have probably, I would imagine, are the two
1: expert dialecticians of our. Um, dialects,
0: Uh, what is is it about your ear?
1: I don't know. (laughs) There are a lot of people who like to hear music and cannot translate it to their voice. There are a lot of people who can hear dialects and cannot translate it to making that sound. I've been fortunate. Um, I can hear a dialect and fairly rapidly can begin to translate what I hear into the sound-making mechanism.
0: Well, I remember the very first time I heard you on radio. It was a Norman Corwin program <laughs> on CBS years ago, and you were a waiter, and this is the most incredible dialect. I could not put the thing even today. It had I don't no, remember it what it was. It was a word. crazy kind of dialect. Yeah. It was Asiatic. It was. I couldn't quite put the finger. It wasn't Chinese, but... No. And you don't remember what that was. It, uh-huh. was, it was a strange kind. Oh, it was. Uh, never quite heard this kind of voice or dialect before, and all the audience knew that it was hilarious. The the also you mentioned pomposity earlier, the man who tried to win the affection of the child by being pompous, mm-hmm. the guy that the Babbitt, and the Bromide is one of the early ones too. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Oh then, yeah. I wonder how that would sound because I want to ask you something about this.
1: Probably but very that, bad.
0: And so cliches immortalized captured once and for all the Babbitt and the Bromide, and again trade secrets. This was kept at regular speed.
1: Up uh, until the very last part yes.
0: And again, control. Perhaps, uh, Danny, you've been very, very profligate with your time here, because I know that you have a very heavy schedule. It's one to find out more about the secrets of one of the artists of our time. Perhaps the, just a reminder to the audience again that uh, seeing you, hearing you is fine, but seeing in the flesh even better. Uh, The 18th to the 23rd, and that two performances on two of the nights, I take it. You're doing eight performances.
1: Yeah, Monday through Saturday night with Wednesday, uh, matinee on uh, Wednesday yes. and Saturday. With Wences and with the Dunhills. Oh, yeah. And Fist, it's great so fun, I must
0: say. But I'm looking forward to it. What better way to end the program than, again, with a ballad and your own interpretation
1: of it? Dina.
0: I suppose Dina has a special significance to you, doesn't it, the song?
1: No, the song has no special no. significance. My daughter that's has that's a that's special that's significance <laughs> <laughs> because she was named after I had done the song for a long time. Somebody said to me, uh, did you name your daughter after the song? And I said, no, I really didn't think so. I may have psychologically you know, been influenced by it, but <clears throat> I, know. I found out later it was a biblical name, Dina, D-E-N-A. And uh, she'll probably be here sometime next week to spend a day or two with me. So this is the Dina, yeah. which you have made your own song pretty much. <clears throat> it's Dina.
0: And perhaps we can say goodbye now and thank you, as we listen to you sing, Dina. And I also hope that, for your sake, the Dodgers uh, can cop the gunfowl on those old sports. Well,
1: I, I, you know, up until now, it's been lovely and relaxed, (laughs) and I'm I'm sorry you threw in this kind of uh, offhand remark, because you have now spoiled (laughs) my whole day. But hope springs eternal, and I shall leave here convinced that the Dodgers will now win the pennant next year, and if they don't, I may move to Wichita.
0: <laughs> Danny Kay, thank you very so much. It was
1: very nice talking to you, and I really had a, a very nice time indeed, and I'd like to come and visit you again the next time I'm in Chicago. Please do so. In the meantime, we shall
0: see you, a great many of Chicago, and shall see you at the Civic Opera House, 18th to 23rd, and Danny Kaye and Dina.